Welcome to the LarryInFishers.com podcast. I'm Larry Lannon. This is a chance for local people or people with a local connection to sit down and talk about what is going on with them in the Fishers community. This is a part of my local Fishers Indiana News blog that began in January of 2012. I started these podcasts in 2016 and have been going ever since. Now, here's the latest edition of the LarryInFishers.com podcast. On the LarryInFishers.com podcast, I'm very honored to have two excellent reporters from the Indianapolis Star. They both cover education, Erica Heron and MJ Slaby. So, ladies, thank you very much for taking time out of what I know is, is a very busy reporting day for both of you. Every day, I'm sure, is a busy reporting day. Thank you very much for being here. Thanks for having us. I'm so excited. Yes, we're excited. Happy to be here. And uh, I would like to start this off uh, with Erica. You know, Erica, um, as a reporter, even a volunteer reporter like I am, you have to pay attention to Twitter for better or worse. And uh, I found out on Twitter yesterday that you teach a journalism class. And your colleague, Ryan Martin, was a guest speaker in your class. And then he, after doing that, he opined that your accent was not professorial enough. I believe the technical term he used was it wasn't highfalutin enough. So <laughs> no, I certainly normal. <laughs> so I'm, that's my point. I hope, Erica, you have not changed your speech pattern for this. No, no, I'm just, I'll be normal today, I promise. <laughs> no well, funny so, accents. <laughs> so what, uh, tell us a little bit about the class you teach. Yeah, um, it's a 200 level news writing and reporting class. So the focus is beat reporting. Each of the students is assigned a beat to cover for the semester. And we talk about the different kinds of beats that professional reporters cover, how you go about covering a beat, developing sources, finding story ideas, uh, that kind of thing. So um, so it's a mix of majors, but it's it's a fun class. This is the first time I've taught this particular class. And I think your your speech pattern is just fine. Um, Thank you, MJ. For uh, you know, many years I've covered. Well, you know, as a volunteer reporter in my community, I have covered the HSC school board for about ten years now. And for many many years, the Star never sent a reporter. Now, Emma K. Fights began uh, coming to school board meetings a couple of years, I think a few years ago, and then when she left the paper, you have uh, taken over for her. I'm just curious. Why the Star now has taken an interest in the northern suburban school districts in general and HSC in particular? Yeah, well, like you mentioned, so when I joined the Star, I was really just replacing Emma Kate. So I joined a Star that already had a North team. Um, And so that's changed a little bit. And, um, you know, we also recently lost uh, Natalia, who was our northern things to do reporter for a while. Um, so for me, I joined a star that always had that team or that team was already established. But I think we just noticed um, that there's a lot of interest uh, in the northern suburbs and and a lot of readers. And I think, you know, the popularity of our story show, shows that as well. I don't know, Erica, if you you might have been there when the North team came together. I don't know if you have anything to add on that. No, the North team actually predates me as well. I think Emma Kate was hired uh, a few months before I joined the Star. Uh, But my understanding was that the kind of Indie Star North project was really aimed at um, just serving uh, a big audience that maybe they hadn't done a great job of serving before. 
there's a lot of readers there, a lot of subscribers in that area, and obviously, you know, a lot of interest in what's happening. And as MJ said, we've really seen that payoff in, in the readership on those stories. Erica, let me ask you this. You had a story that uh, published, I'll say published, posted, so because there are different dates that it's something may be posted online compared to the print product, but I'll just say published uh, or posted on October 18th. And it had to do with how many students are testing COVID positive at Indiana schools. And the numbers were, were quite surprising. Uh, can you kind of tell us what your reporting showed there? Yes, it took me, you said October 18th. I was like, oh, that was weeks ago, Larry. I don't remember which story we're talking about here. Um, so uh, the, the generally, I cannot remember exactly what happened in that one. We do those updates every week as the state dashboard updates, uh, just to keep an eye on what's happening in our schools. But what we've seen is, you know, um, we had a huge spike kind of at the beginning of this fall semester that um, peaked maybe six or seven weeks ago at like close to 7,000 student cases reported in a single week. Um, and of course, that's without, you know, hundreds of schools still participating in this dashboard. Um, but I think the milestone that we just passed that maybe you're referencing is we actually have now reported more student cases already this school year. Um, and we're maybe half or two thirds through the fall semester than we did all of last school year total, um, which has been kind of shocking to see that the cases have at least been uh, trending downward the last few weeks. Let me bring MJ into this because uh, I did a story the other day um, with the public health director for the city of Fishers, Monica Heltz, and uh, we, we, we were anticipating that the vaccine would be approved for 5 to 11-year-olds, and now that has happened, and now the ball is beginning to roll. And she said a couple of different things as it affects Fishers. Of course, HSC School is a little more than Fishers, but it, it takes in all of Fishers. And she was telling me that, number one, uh, the initial rollout of the vaccine will be sent out to the states, and then the states will allocate it, and Fishers doesn't know how much initial uh, vaccine they're going to get because these are different vials, different dosages. There'll be specific vaccine vials for the youngsters. And the second thing is uh, uh, Ms. Health also told me that they're talking with the HSC schools about doing some kind of program for vaccinations, but apparently uh, HSC has no interest in, um, how should I put this, they have no interest in giving out vaccinations during the school day, perhaps at special events and that kind of thing. I wonder with the spike that Erica reported on on October 18th, uh, do you think that we will find that the vaccinations may help? And I, I do wonder how many parents are going to choose the vaccination. What are you hearing in your reporting? Well, I think, yeah, that's the big question. Um, you know, I haven't circled back to it um, with this recent round um, for the younger students, but when we saw it approved for those middle school and high school students, uh, the reaction was kind of mixed. You know, there were parents that were saying like, absolutely, this, you know, gets us closer to whatever a new normal is. And then there were other parents that were saying, absolutely not. And I think too, um, over at IUPUI, and Eric, you'll have to chime in on the execs of this, but they did a survey about parent uh, interest in the vaccine. And I know it was it was lower than um, I might have expected it to be. So I think you might be seeing some of that reflection in, um, and I have not talked to HSE about um, what you were talking about, Larry, but I think it, it's sort of interesting um, that 
it it's kind of this, you know, it's very much a personal choice for people. And so, so seeing that as, you know, we don't want to necessarily put that in the school setting, right. And where people are trying to encourage this and do that, but also having that separate from the school day. So, yeah, I think it'll be remained to be seen if there is enough interest to kind of, um, we'll, we'll start noticing that difference on the dashboard. Yes, Erica, I saw that IUPUI study, and it was sort of an initial thing. But what I'm finding just anecdotally is that a lot of parents initially don't say yes because the most common response the parents are giving is, well, I want to talk to my pediatrician first, which to me is a perfectly reasonable thing to do. Absolutely. I mean, I completely understand where parents are coming from if they feel some sort of hesitation about, you know, giving a new vaccine to their children. I don't have kids myself. Um, You know, I was excited to get the vaccine, but I can understand, you know, that I might feel, um, take more time to think about that decision if I was making it for my child than if I was making it for myself even. Um, But we did see that survey found, I just pulled up the story to double check that like 45% of parents were excited to get their kids vaccinated, you know, when they were able to another, I think 42% um, said they probably wouldn't. And another 13% were kind of in that wait and see group. So there is kind of a a mixed reaction there across the board. Um, And maybe, you know, as we get further along and some of the, the results come out and we see, you know, that there aren't a lot of negative side effects that is safe, maybe more parents will kind of get on board. And also, um, you know, when we're talking about the school setting, students who are vaccinated don't have to quarantine in most cases if they've been, you know, identified as a close contact or exposed, which is another, um, you know, kind of incentive to, to get kids vaccinated and um, like MJ said, all trying to get back to this kind of uh, more relative normal. You know, both of you co-wrote a, a piece that uh, was published October 22nd, uh, and it was a lengthy piece and, and well-sourced piece. You had a lot of sources you spoke with. It's about harassment and intimidation endured by teachers and school officials, school board members in particular. I know you quoted a couple of HSC school board members in that story. Uh, this is a charged atmosphere we are finding. You know, I covered education in the late 70s, years, early 80s, when I made my living as a reporter and never saw anything like this. And even in 10 years at HSC, I've seen uh, situations I've, I've never seen before in school board meetings. And that's more. And just not only that, but what some of these teachers and uh, officials are enduring outside of the school board meetings themselves. So, I, MJ, talk about what you came away from after you reported that story, saw the final result. Uh, what's happening, and, and what, what do you think uh, will be the result of, of all this, this charged atmosphere we're seeing in education locally? It's kind of a national trend, but we're seeing it locally as well. What, uh, what did you learn most from your reporting? Yeah, I think that... You know, this is something that we had heard or I had heard, you know, rumblings about kind of just over the course of this more tense periods at school boards. You know, I you think back to maybe about the spring is kind of when I started noticing. I think it was um, yeah, the spring in Westfield. They were the first one to have the debates about books um, that we then later saw at HSE um, and Carmel and and a little bit too at Noblesville. So when you think of of across that time, you know, I'd heard some of the rumblings of these things. And I think to me, this story was 
sort of a, a buildup of all of that, sort of those rumblings, being able to confirm things and being able to get people willing uh, to talk about their experiences on the record. You know, that can be one of the challenges of people saying, you know, this is an issue, but I don't want to be the person um, to talk about it. And so, you know, for for us, I think this story was a way to be able to to show what's been happening and to have people who are willing to say like, yes, you know, I'm at a point where I want to be able to talk about what's happening in schools and and share that with the greater public. And Erica, you co-wrote that piece, but you also, mm-hmm. if I remember correctly, and correct me if I'm wrong, I believe you were in attendance covering the Carmel School Board meeting that had such an, an uproar that that caused the Carmel School Board to just do virtual meetings. Uh, talk talk about that piece you wrote and, and that experience in Carmel. Yeah, that's correct. Um, MJ was on vacation, so I was filling in a very well-timed vacation on her part. Um, So yeah, that was actually, I think that was my first Carmel School Board meeting, so quite the introduction. Um, So the the story that we ended up writing, um, you know, we had been thinking and talking about this story kind of before that meeting even happened. And we knew some of these things were taking place behind the scenes, and had been talking about how we could approach that story. Um, you know, I think everyone was pretty aware at that point of what had been happening generally at school board meetings and some of the hostility, um, the disruption that we had been seeing that really did feel unprecedented. Um, but what story we thought was important kind of to do next was what was happening kind of beyond that public setting that maybe was even more um you know, insidious than what we have been seeing. Because um, I think the school board story had almost been played out to the point where it was kind of becoming this like almost joke. Um, but, you know, threats, harassment, blackmail, intimidation, like those things aren't funny. Um, and that that's not a joke. And that was a story we wanted to tell and shed a little bit more light on what's happening. Um, so all of that conversation was happening before the Carmel school board meeting. And then that meeting um, was really interesting you know, you have, it's difficult. You have a group of people who are parents and who say, you know, that they have these concerns and they want to feel heard, which is very understandable position, right? As a parent, you're concerned about your child's education and what's happening in their schools. Um, but then you have the school district saying that like, this isn't the, the proper way to go about being heard. And there are you know, more appropriate avenues to do that. And that was kind of the conflict we saw there. But um, it was a very animated group in the audience there. Um, it looks like there was some perhaps kind of coordination from folks there. They all have these like printed out slips, you know, statements that they were prepared to read. Um, so I think some of it was trying to, you know, make a statement um, that was kind of planned ahead of time, but coming out of, you know, some legitimate concerns about what's happening in their school district. Um, but obviously the I know we all would take the position that, you know, this behind the scenes, what we're seeing is an intimidation, this harassment of teachers, you know, yelling at teachers until they cry, um, trying to blackmail them into resigning, things like that would not be the appropriate way to handle concerns. And, you know, you both contributed to a story that was uh, posted on October 22nd with a statewide uh, look. Uh, there was a contribution. There were contributions made from Gannett newspapers all throughout Indiana about what's happening uh, with the school systems there. And when you looked at that list in its entirety, that was uh, that was quite compelling. When you saw the entire list, I'll ask both of you. First, MJ, what did you think of that? 
whole story once you saw it completely put together. Yeah, I, th- I think it just really shows um, both the timeline, right? Like how, how long this has been happening, but also, like you said, the reach, you know, and that this is, uh, it's a local story, but it's also a statewide story and a national story. Like this is happening uh, across the country, across Indiana, but also in the districts we cover. And so I think being able to show that this isn't, um, while the concerns might be unique and the players might be unique and surely there are different things, you know, even between like HSE and Carmel and HSE and Noblesville and, and Westfield, um, there's sort of this overarching trend um, that seems to be happening really everywhere. And Erica, when you saw that statewide story put together, uh, your thoughts? Yeah, I wouldn't say I was surprised necessarily because we've been so kind of immersed in this for so long, but to be reminded of, you know, just what's been happening um, kind of around the state is just really fascinating. And I guess my thought was really just kind of where do we, as a, where do we go from here, right? As kind of a society and as, you know, communities that are passionate and engaged um, and care about our, like the education system and the education of our children, kind of where do we go from, from this point and how do we kind of deal with this problem that we yet. Speaking of where we go from here, MJ, I'll have you start on this because we have a school board election and many places around the state, but at HSE schools, we have an election. Four of the seven school board seats will be up for election next year in the fall election. These are the last year we had uh, an at-large. We have to live in your township, but everybody votes on you. These will only be voted on within the, the four districts that are um, in the, the HSC schools. So we have uh, well, how many of the four incumbents will run for re-election? How many people will choose to run for school board in the next election? That's something I'm watching. Are you watching that too? Oh, yeah. I um, Yeah, I think it's fascinating. Like you said, HSC has a majority of the board, some of the other districts and Hamilton County, I mean, they all have elections. I, I don't know off the top of my head how many are majority, but I think it'll definitely be, you know, in some ways, I think some of this is a ramp up to that. And so I definitely think it'll be interesting. And, uh, you know, speaking of unprecedented, I think there will be more attention to school board elections uh, than there have been in past years, which, you know, um, I, I want people to pay attention. You know, I think it's important, right? Like pay attention to school board elections. So, yeah, I think this will be an election probably unlike the ones we've seen before that have been just a little bit more sleepy and a little bit more maybe uh, uncontested. Well, we tend to have plenty of candidates at HSC. I think we had three or four candidates at a couple of them uh, races last time. So we, we tend to have interest. I think only one time in the last several years have we had an unopposed candidate. So we'll see what happens in this round. I want to turn to Erica because, Erica, you had a very good story, I thought, uh, on volunteerism, because the key to any successful school corporation, how many volunteers they can uh, they can put together, and the quality of those volunteers within their own community, and and your story said that and COVID has a lot to do with this. That school systems are having trouble recruiting volunteers, and you give some you gave one particular example. Talk about that. Yeah. So um, the the program I wrote about is called Lead Up, and it is a program from the United Way of Central Indiana operates in uh, 23 schools this year um, at its peak 
before the pandemic, it was in 33 schools in six counties. So um, it's just one example of a volunteer program, but it's uh, pretty illustrative of the problem. Um, you know, they had really robust volunteerism in this program. It's well-established, they've been around for years, kind of before the pandemic. The pandemic happened, schools closed, and then when they reopened last fall, most of them, almost all schools had a no visitors, no volunteer policy last year. Uh, they were trying to just limit, you know, the number of people who were coming into their buildings to limit any you know, potential exposure to COVID or spread. Um, so they, they didn't have that last year. And so um, restarting those programs has been a challenge this year. Um, and it's, it's kind of twofold. They're having trouble finding your volunteers and kind of getting those people back into their buildings. I think some people still aren't sure if it's safe. A lot of school volunteers are retirees, maybe retired teachers. Some older folks, uh, you know, don't feel safe necessarily maybe going back into a special school setting where a lot of kids are too young to be vaccinated or have been up until just recently. Um, and then a lot of corporate volunteers um, are working from home now. So that's really changed the dynamic for those folks. Um, but at the same time, they're having trouble finding volunteers. Uh, they have this great need, right? We know what the pandemic uh, did to kids learning. We know it disrupted it. We know it set them back. They're really seeing that um, and you know, need some extra help. They always have, you know, teachers can't do it all. Um, but it's been a unique challenge this year. It was a very interesting story. And I think it also uh, goes into uh, the the whole issue of, of finding uh, substitute teachers. That's been a difficult uh, situation for a lot of school systems, and it ties into that as well. A lot of those people are older, retired teachers or others, and, and they've been hesitant to come back. At HSC, they seem to have enough, but it's you know you never have enough is what they tell me. Bus drivers and the whole uh, cafeteria workers, the whole gamut of what uh, what goes on. Let me switch to MJ because MJ, you you do uh, reported a story about TikTok, and I got to be honest, I do try to keep up with the latest trends. I am not on TikTok. Maybe it's my age, I don't know what, but I'm just not on it. I generally know what it is, but there was a recent TikTok trend encouraging students to do vandalism in their schools and to videotape or video record it, whatever, and then put it up on TikTok. Uh, you did a story about that and found that even though that was kind of a national trend, it, it was happening, but wasn't uh, as big in Indiana. Uh, tell us what you found. Yeah, well, I also learned a lot about TikTok doing that story, Larry. So uh, so it's not just you. Um, yeah, you know, that was one of those things where it was a national trend and an editor said, see what's happening. And uh, I reached out to a whole bunch of districts in central Indiana just to say, like, what are you noticing? Um, and some of them right away were like, yes, we're having this problem. There were some that said, I'm not even sure what this is. Let me check. And then they came back and they're like, oh, yeah, we're having this problem. You know, so um, so it's one of those things where it, it's kind of just it's worth asking. Right. Like, here's a national trend. What does it look like here? And so I think what what I found was yes, you know, this is a problem here. It might not be to the extremes that we've seen in some of the national reporting, you know, bathroom doors, ceiling tiles, that sort of thing. Uh, but it was happening locally. And I think we had the one uh, school resource officer in Avon who even made his own TikToks um, encouraging students to not participate in the trend. Uh, so, so yeah, it was kind of just a fun, uh, a, a fun story to do about, a, I mean, a serious issue, of course, but 
so yeah, I, I learned about TikTok trends too. So uh, you never know what the day the day's reporting is going to bring. Yeah, it's like uh, people complain about Facebook and there's all this attention on it, yet the young, younger, younger people, they moved on from Facebook years ago. <laughs> and TikTok is one of those apps that they, they tend to use. Erica, I would like to ask you about a recent report or a story you reported on, on on moves by some state education officials. And this is is an effort to make changes in how schools are graded. Normally, it's a, it's a test score. A lot of people have criticized that one test score should not you should not be grading a building or a school system or just however you want to you know, crunch the numbers. So the standardized tests, they say, doesn't tell you about the entire school system. Yet I read your story, and I'm, I'm looking at some of the measurements that the state's looking at, and, and it seems to me this is going to be a heavy lift to get this done. Tell me uh, what you learned from your reporting on that story. Yeah, um, it's an interesting one. So this started with the state legislature last year, kind of directing the state uh, board of education and the Indian Department of Education to come up with a new, what they call accountability system, which is the way in which we measure and grade schools to hold them accountable for their performance and the, the job they're doing educating kids. So for a long time, that system has been largely based on just these standardized test scores, which, as you were saying, have a lot of uh, criticism, but they don't really tell the full story. It's kind of just this snapshot in time, right? One day, one test, and that's largely what determines the students' grades. And those tests are, you know, a lot of research has found that they're better predictors of kind of a school or a child's um, income level, like their family situation, poverty level, rather than, you know, actual academic performance or the ability of a school to help a kid learn and grow. So the state's been looking for a new way to, uh, you know, hold schools accountable and to tell a a larger picture, a larger story. So we know that um, the test scores from our standardized test will probably still be part of that. It's just not going to be the whole uh, picture anymore. And uh, we don't know how large yet because they're still in the process of kind of determining how they'll create the system, but they're looking at adding in other factors, um, such as like what kinds of, uh, you know, career um, internship opportunities students get um, and different factors like that. There was conversation at one point about trying to track students and kind of after high school and see how they do in like kind of post-secondary life, <laughs> whether they enroll in, in uh, post-secondary education or enlist in the military or get a job. Um, and there was hold schools accountable for that. There was some pushback from schools on how feasible that would be and how fair that would be. Um, but yeah, they're looking at adding in like this whole host of new factors. Um, and it should be really interesting. I think these conversations are always fraught because you're never going to make everyone happy. <laughs> um, but we are, you know, really moving into an era uh, where test scores will not be the only factor, which I think at the end of the day um, will be good for, for kids in schools. So do you think this will, the final decision on this will come from the legislature or from uh, the, uh, the the state school officials and permanent staff, the uh, superintendent of education? Any indication from your reporting as to how this will go. I'm, I'm assuming the legislature will want to say in this. The, the State Board of Education, it's kind of in their hands at this point. So they have determined now the framework, these kind of five pillars that they'll be using. And the next steps are to figure out how they measure those things, uh, kind of what factors will go into 
um, each of those pillars. But no, it's it's in the state board's hands now. Yeah, that's something that anybody in education or with with the child in the education system should should uh, pay attention to. Let me go back to MJ. I um, I have been reporting for way before COVID about the teacher shortage. And everybody I spoke with, even at HSE schools, which has less of an issue recruiting teachers in other school systems, told me that their pool was getting shorter and smaller way before COVID was ever an issue. Um, Students in in the education schools, based on the numbers I'm seeing, and I'd like to, to know what you've seen on this, they're turning their back on a teaching degree these days. Uh, there are a lot of reasons people say, I'm not going to get into that. Uh, in your discussions with your sources, just I'm sure you talk about this on and off with the number of school systems that you cover. Um, what have you learned, if anything, about a teacher shortage in Indiana, which sort of ties into this you know, pressure that teachers have had lately with COVID and some, at least anecdotal evidence, of some are just leaving the profession altogether. I'd kind of like to get your take as to what you've been hearing on this teacher shortage issue. Yeah, I think I've been, um, you know, so I haven't uh, really gone into this, but I, I think it's a lot of the same, right? I mean, if you want to go back to the story we were just talking about, about what's going on behind the scenes with teachers feeling um, intimidated and harassed. You know, a lot of it is it's kind of this just snowball, right. Of feeling, you know, when the pandemic started, teachers were, were lauded as heroes. Um, And then there was teachers feeling, you know, okay, we have to teach in person. We have to teach virtually sometimes at the same time. Uh, You know, there's all the added stipulations about masks and distancing and all of that. And that's changing you know, we've seen that change a lot since the pandemic started. Uh, so there's that. And then there's also these other issues related to uh, diversity or social emotional learning. Right. And so I think what what I'm hearing is, yes, a lot of teachers are feeling just kind of this snowball of all these added pressures. Um, and so that's making making leaders concerned. You know, what what can they do to, to retain their teachers and to make sure that teachers uh, want to get into this profession. So um, I know it's something too, when you think about uh, Erica's reporting in the legislature too, when we talk about teacher pay, right? Um, It feels like a a million years ago, but you know, what was it? Two years ago, uh, we were at the state house covering red for red. You know, that was one of my first big assignments for the star. Uh, So I think there's a lot that kind of goes into it and as has been snowballed. And so it'll be really interesting to see, like you said, who decides to go into education still and and what districts can do uh, to help retain and attract those teachers. Anytime we do a podcast, I try to do this at the very end. Uh, Something I may not have thought to ask, you've seen trends you're looking at, what you've been reporting on, anything you'd like to add. Uh, Erica, I'll give you the first shot at this. Oh, um, I'm prepared. So, um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> we, no, that's okay. We, um, I'm getting ready, you know, trying to look at what's coming up in this next legislative session. So, I'm um, trying to figure out what issues are going to be top of mind there, what legislation might be coming, um, that's going to impact our schools. So, we're expecting, you know, I'm just taking a look at what's been happening in states around us that have a different legislative schedule to see maybe if we'll see some of those same bills. So we've seen you know, some of this like CRT and you know, curriculum uh, legislation happening um, around the country. So I'm wondering if we'll see some of that um, you know, coming at the state house. So those, those are the things I'm looking at right now. 
And MJ, same question for you. Yeah, now I know how um, sources feel when I interview them and ask them that same question. <laughs> uh, I was like, oh, thankfully Erica went first. Um, yeah, I think, you know, to go back to our previous conversation, I am just, I, I'm really jazzed to, to kind of follow along with the school board elections. I really think it's going to be a big thing um, in local communities this year, you know, people kind of starting to organize and figure out who who might run and, and what that all looks like. And, you know, to our earlier conversation, kind of figuring out where where do we go from here as we have these tensions at school boards and these tensions between the community and the schools and and how does that get resolved? What what potential solutions are on the table? So I think it's just continuing to report out this story that has been, um, you know, taken up most of most of the year, to be honest. Right. I mean, we go back all the way to March. So I think it's kind of continuing that. and And I feel like the school board elections are are another piece in that. Well, I've written about this many times, and I'll say it again right here. You should always subscribe to your local media. And the Indianapolis Star makes it very easy. If you're a new subscriber, you can start your subscription for $1 a month. And how many months depends on what special is involved in three and six months. You can just have a dollar a month and sample it. I think you'll want to... you will want to subscribe because the star is doing such good work in covering the schools in a much more intense way, especially in places like Fishers than they have in past. I can say that from experience over the last 10 years, there is a a new emphasis in in covering Fishers and it's good to see from my point of view. And uh, Erica and, um, and MJ, thank you so much for taking time out of your day today. Really enjoyed talking with you. Thanks for having us, us, Larry. And if anyone is a new subscriber, they should sign up for our newsletter to Study Hall. That's a weekly education newsletter that MJ and I write. And uh, I read it every week. I think it's every week, isn't it? I read it every week, and I think it's worthy of of you doing it as well. Thank you again, ladies, and a great, great podcast. Thanks so much, Larry. Thanks for listening to the LarryInFishers.com podcast. If you like the podcast, please let others know. You can find it on most platforms where you go for podcasts. Just search using this phrase, Podcasts by Larry Lannan, L-A-N-N-A-N. Also, if you listen on a platform such as iTunes, please take a moment, rate and comment on my podcast series. So thanks for listening, and please be safe and be kind. Mm -hmm.